hey everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a one-woman book podcast that explores the least discussed titles of Stephen King to hopefully uncover what has been left behind. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the continuing episode for last week's exploration of Hearts in Atlantis, Part 1. This is officially Part 2, where we are going to dive into the remaining four stories in the collection and examine how they are connected, which stories are stronger than the others. So if you'd like and haven't yet listened to Part 1, I encourage that you jump back and listen to the first part cover on Hearts in Atlantis where I deep dive into the first mini novel of the story collection called Low Men in Yellow Coats. I do recommend starting with that one to get some character names in your mind because those character names will pop up again in the following stories. So it's best to either jog your memory if you have read Hearts in Atlantis previously or if you're listening just to listen and learn and perhaps see if maybe Hearts in Atlantis is a title you might want to read in the near future. So I highly suggest listening to last week's episode if you haven't before you hang out over here with me because I don't want to confuse anybody. But last week's episode, we only went over one story, which is a first for the podcast. That's typically not our MO, but it was such a meaty and rich tale. It deserved its own episode 100%. And for me, I just treated it like a mini novel, which I think that's exactly what it was. But today, we have three decently sized stories with one little baby, almost 15-pager final note at the very end. So for today's episode, I'm going to treat each story like its own little casserole. Everything's going to be in one pan. Each story gets its own little dish. So I will talk about the summary of each story, notable characters, Potentially here and there, I will share a passage or two of the text I really enjoy, and I'll also include maybe what I didn't like about the story and questions I have about it, uh, whether or not I feel it's connecting appropriately, etc. So usually on these episodes, Each one of those categories has its own section, but concerning individual stories, I try to keep it organized by putting everything into one pot and stirring around the most flavorful, substantial elements worth discussing. Ergo, I plan with this episode to have approximately four meaty sections where I will go over the remaining four stories and then we'll have a final thoughts section where I'm going to talk about Hearts in Atlantis in its entirety as a five-story collection and go over the book as a whole, my overall thoughts on what King has done by bringing these five narratives together. So that's our table of contents for today, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope you enjoy it. If you have some ideas for me in the future for any alternative ways of organizing my thoughts regarding these stories, I am all ears. Please let me know ASAP. 
So once more, feel free to pause and jump back to last week's episode to familiarize yourself with where King is starting us off. And if you've already listened to last week's episode, you know that we're beginning a rather emotionally charged, very melancholy exploration into lost innocence as well as getting to know a very definitive generation in American history. So with the story, Low Men in Yellow Coats, King opens up the reader to the year 1960 with some wonderful child characters that melt your heart. And then King, per usual, takes your melted heart and breaks it with what goes down in the summer of 1960 in the little town of Harwich, Connecticut. So if you are a Dark Tower fan, make sure you have read Low Men in Yellow Coats as I think you'll really enjoy it. And please look kindly on your host Kim C who has not yet begun her tower journey. I know my head is hung in shame. My journey is slated to begin next month, for those of you uh, wanting to know when I'm going to get on that, but I do, in my first episode, have a lot of questions about what's in the story that is DT-related. However, the emotional weight of the characters within Low Men and Yellow Coats and the themes explored and the writing is absolutely top-notch, and I think it was a really wonderful beginning hook in this five-collection narrative. So at present, my friends, let's dive in to our second 153-page, approximately, according to my American hardcover copy, entitled Hearts in Atlantis. story number two. So the title Hearts in Atlantis sounds a little romantic, a little mysterious perhaps, but on the first page of this story the reader is introduced to our main protagonist and narrator Peter Riley. And this guy is completely brand new to our narrative palette. And it's a really engaging opener because Peter is an older man reflecting on his youth, specifically his first fall semester at the University of Maine in the year 1966. So we have gone six years into the future from our last story. Uh, probably a little more more than that. I think that Low Men in Yellow Coats ends around 62-ish, actually. So we might be um, a little further, but six years on paper. So in Peter Riley's opener, he sort of waxes on about the 60s in general and introduces the notion of Atlantis. And this is on page 257. When I try and talk about the 60s, when I even try to think about them, I am overcome by horror and hilarity. I see bell-bottom pants and earth shoes, 
I smell pot and patchouli, incense and peppermints, and I hear Donovan Leach singing his sweet and stupid song about the continent of Atlantis, lyrics that still seem profound to me in the watches of the night when I can't sleep. The older I get, the harder it is to let go of that song's stupidity and hold on to its sweetness. I have to remind myself that we were smaller then, small enough to live our brightly hued lives under the mushrooms, all the time believing them to be trees, shelter from the sheltering sky. I know that doesn't make any real sense, but it's the best I can do. Hail Atlantis. So I listened to the song <laughs> by uh, Mr. Donovan Leach, and it's an interesting one. It, it reminds me, granted, I don't have extensive musical knowledge of certain groups before the mid-1970s, but I am a fan of the Moody Blues, and uh, I got some Moody Blues blues vibes from this one. Uh, it was interesting, but I really appreciate the psychedelic spoken word components of it, the folk components of it. Um, so yeah, I super enjoyed it. And I actually, thinking about it, yeah, never mind what I said about the 1970s because the doors were way before them. So um, yeah, I was unfamiliar with the song Atlantis, but it, listening to it definitely puts you in the right headspace for this story, most definitely. It's really good. And the song was released in 1968, so technically it doesn't really lend itself to the actual time period of the story. But our narrator, Pete Riley, is really holding the memory of these times, holding them close to the song, which I really like. The title, Hearts in Atlantis, is very layered, my friends. One could look at it as souls attached to a lost civilization. If one is feeling slightly poetic, you could head in that direction. Or rather, what's going to be massively explored in this particular story is a card game called Hearts, which I've never played. Um, I It might have come up in my life in terms of playing it, not playing it, but it sounds a bit complex and knowing myself, if it's overly complex and you need a pen and paper and you have to keep score, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I really like simple card games uh, without a lot of fuss. So I totally see myself having never played the game before, but apparently it is really fun and King explains the rules of the game where the object is to have the lowest score and I believe to avoid the Queen of Spades as best as one can due to the fact that suits, certain suits carry a particular weight of points. So I might be wrong, but Hearts also refers to the game itself in the title Hearts in Atlantis as well as the players in this story and Atlantis I believe could be seen as an idea or we can attribute it to all those kids who were children in the 50s and are now new young adults in the 1960s and their decisions and motivations and movements will split society and contemporary culture in half. So with these Atlanteans, we have really the birth of anti-war protests. We have got 
the hippies, the Black Panthers, we have the women's liberation movement, the whole enchilada of social justice and civil unrest starts to heat up in this chunk of time. And so as we read this first story, the second largest in the collection, I think Hearts in Atlantis is full of meaning, and I think it was a really good choice to title the collection after this story. More on that in a little bit. But as a quick summary, the story Hearts in Atlantis is about a group of college freshmen at the University of Maine who quickly become obsessed with playing hearts, the card game hearts for money. So it's a movement throughout the college and so many students find themselves doing poorly in school due to this obsession with the game. And as the hearts wave is dousing the school, the birth of the peace sign, or what is called a random bird slash sparrow track, starts popping up on the clothes of the students and sentiments against Vietnam are creeping into the conversations as well as the first participations in protests where young people who never had opinions on the world before are awakening to their new selves. Lots of good stuff in this story, guys. So we have a lot of characters mentioned in this one as King right away plugs us into a community of college freshmen. So I'm going to mention some of the most standout characters we have, but I'll begin with the one we all know, and that's Carol Gerber. So Carol is in this story, and I mentioned her in part one, where we first meet her in the trio of Bobby Garfield and Sully John, Carol Gerber is right in the middle, and she has a pretty significant role in this story, not only in this story, but throughout this collection, which we will be examining today. And uh, she also has a romantic connection to our narrator, Peter Riley. Also, I think I forgot to mention, I should do that right now. I am going to have a few spoilers in this episode, guys, so I don't think this one will be super duper spoiler free. I'll do my best to not reveal everything, but I am going to reveal a little bit plot wise because uh, this story has a lot of stuff going on in it. So just a heads up, uh, if you want to avoid super big spoilers concerning some of these characters, go ahead and hang back just a little bit until you're all done with the story. But anyway, uh, Carol is here. She has a little bit of a connection to our narrator, Peter Riley. Uh, Carol is 17 in this story, and King had her skip the seventh grade to make the timeline work for her attending the University of Maine for the fall semester. And I'm going to go into Carol a little bit in greater detail toward the end, but Carol is definitely on the cusp of a lot of things here, a lot of endings and beginnings, and I really enjoyed her presence in this story and more on Carol in just a little bit. But lots of characters because King, for those of us who have read some of his larger works before, you know he starts creating a very immersive world pretty quickly and all of a sudden you get names hurled at you 
right away, which is what we have here. And it's very enjoyable because he starts building up that freshman class right away, and suddenly we're being introduced to roommates and groups and people hanging out together. And for any of you guys who may have fond memories of college, this is a wonderfully reminiscent experience. Uh, looking back, I think in general, all college is really stressful, but there are, hopefully for some, a lot of good times and friendships formed. Um, but as some of us know, the first freshman term is really the most definitive because it's such a fun new experience, it's incredibly socially alive, and so many new things are happening at school, clubs, um, new friendships, new relationships, new classes and ideas. Studying is hard to balance, uh, schoolwork in general is really difficult to stay on top of, and because of that, most people who don't perform so well get really freaked out by the cost of attending and drop out, go back home, get jobs. But what's really sobering in King's Tale in this story is that if these kids flunk out of school, they go to Vietnam. And it's very, very real reality in, in this story to where suddenly keeping your grades up is life and death. So I'm not exactly if that was... So when I look at the draft of Vietnam and the lottery, I'm not 100% as to how it worked. Um, but in King's story, it seemed like there was immense pressure on young men to serve. Uh, immense pressure, and if you weren't um, in school, it meant that you were most likely going to be drafted. So I need to take a brief pause to just shake my head at that for a little bit, and we're gonna have a really quick tangent, my friends. It's just needed, but super quick tangent. So Vietnam, for those of us who have maybe studied it or know a thing or two or English majors slash creative writing people out there who may have read the brilliant and real-life Vietnam veteran Tim O'Brien, my friends, it's the worst war ever. I mean, I'm sure arguably there are other worse ones out there, but for me, I... My guys, when I read about it, learn about it, hear these stories, it's just... Uh, it's young men going into the dark jungles of total hell. And in my opinion, this is just my own, I don't really feel there was very just cause for the fight. I just don't feel there was. Um, this wasn't World War II. Uh, there was, um, yeah... I, there was something very terrible and bureaucratic and unnecessary and the nightmarish jungles swallowed these poor young men and ripped them to pieces. And for me, there is truly nothing more horrifying, nothing that takes me closer to literal hell on earth than when I read about the Vietnam War and these poor men dying in the jungle. 
So I'll talk more about how King really brings that to the reader in our fourth story, but oh my guys, this is just a heavy subject for sure. I think that it's, uh, these are, these stories are hard to read, but they're important to read. And if you're interested on the subject or interested in reading some really glorious, beautiful, poetic, terrible, terribly somber reflections, I do recommend reading The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And if you want to audiobook it, Brian Cranston of Walter White Infamy, the greatest television show ever, Breaking Bad, <laughs> um, Brian Cranston narrates the novel and oh my friends, oh man, he takes it to the next level of truly unforgettable storytelling. Okay, back on track. So our characters get in really deep by playing hearts, schoolwork starts to get neglected, and the very real impact of having to go fight in Vietnam, regardless of whether you want to or not, becomes a very real reality for our characters, specifically our narrator Peter Riley and a few others. So I wanted to mention a few characters in this story because I think uh, they really highlight King's writing strength, but also make the story come to life in a very rich way because King is giving us very different walks of life and then all of a sudden everyone is just crammed together in tight dorm rooms with lots of hot button topics swimming around. So for me, the characters within Hearts in Atlantis are what make it a really good story. So number one, we're going to start with the most bombastic, Ronnie Malenfant. So this is a quote from page 277 and this is what King says about Ronnie. Ronnie was a bigot with a foul mouth, a cringing personality, and the constant monkey fungus stink, but he could play cards, I give him that. He wasn't the genius he claimed to be, at least not in hearts where luck is a big part of the game, but he was good. So Ronnie Malenfant, I believe that last name means bad baby or misbehaved child. Malenfant, um, my, <laughs> uh, my French is crap, my Latin is crap, so I might be wrong on that one. But this character, my friends, he leaps off the page. King makes him absolutely a freight train of balls to the wall in regards to how obnoxious he is, how unattractive, rude, gross, and yet beguilingly magnetic. So for those of us who are fans of the novel It, uh, Richie Tozier is the comedian of the Losers Club. He's the funny man of the group. He always has some cheeky one-liners and punchlines, but for the most part, Richie has a really sweet spirit. He's a good guy. Where Ronnie, this guy, not like Richie, he's way more over the top, and not only is he really rude, and boisterous, but King also makes him very physically unappealing and unfortunate looking. He's covered in pretty intense acne, and he has a super grating, annoying voice that's just loud, and you can hear him across several yards. You can hear him across campus. And this guy just ticks every box in terms of being a social nuisance, but also someone who just commands the room. 
And I love that dichotomy. I love that dynamic of King creating somebody who is so unappealing and not wanted and yet making them totally owning themselves and just being bold as brass. So uh, Ronnie is a lot more crass and cruel than Richie could ever be, but I think King has ramped up what he did with Richie and made Ronnie completely nutso. So, um, much of the stuff that Ronnie says is eye-rollingly gross and totally for dudes only, which this entire story is a lot like getting stuck in a locker room, you guys. So, for example, the phrase suck me sideways ass breath is just one of the several crass little ditties that's heaved around the story, and that one is relatively light compared to the others. So it's it's bananas, but truthfully, I can't help but laugh, honestly. Like, I thought it was fun and immersive for sure, but it's locker room speak totally and call me puritan patty but after a while i was over it i was like okay uh, this is gross but i did have a super big mega laugh attack with something ronnie said i'll try and remember it here in a little bit major laughs i could not hold it in you guys so it was an awesome moment where ronnie just says what what's on everyone's mind but he's just one of those king characters who says it meaner and better so i really like this character i do this character, Ronnie Malenfant, does take a darker turn in the next couple stories, so more on that in a little bit. But here in Hearts in Atlantis, he's... I hate to use the word charming because I don't think he's charming, but he's magnetic. He's something. So I really uh, think Ronnie is a crucial, enjoyable part to this story. Number two, Nate Hoppenstand. This quote is from page 262. My roommate didn't play hearts. My roommate didn't have any use for the undeclared war in Vietnam. My roommate wrote home to his girlfriend, a senior at Wisdom Consolidated High School, every day. Put a glass of water next to Nate Hoppenstand and it was the water that looked vivacious. So Nate is the goody two-shoes character of our story and oh my gosh guys this guy is just you know so he's just too good he's too precious and I think there's even a scene where he's wearing matching plaid pajamas just straight out of you know leave it to beaver or something like that he's he's a good guy he just follows the rules he's faithful and kind and majoring in dentistry um but what i really like about nate is as pete's roommate he's someone who has a kind of he's his eyes are open to what's going on around him so even though he is a goody goody his eyes are open and he starts to really realize concerning the vietnam war he does not agree with it and decides to speak out against it and i like how king surprises the reader by taking a cookie cutter good guy who's kind of just the peacemaker he doesn't want any conflict he doesn't want any confrontation he just wants to do well in school and marry his girlfriend and be a dentist and make his parents proud and yet 
he's someone who, you know, he doesn't want to ruffle anybody's feathers of any kind at all. And yet this guy feels compelled, just morally compelled to publicly speak his mind. And it's a really nice part of the story and some great character development. Number three, we have David Dearborn. So at first I thought he was related to Alan Pangborn, but no, he's a Dearborn. So this guy is our villain in a way. He is kind of a bad guy in the fact that he is operating as the pro-military, pro-Vietnam guy who is the Hall Proctor, is the word that King uses um, for David Dearborn. And another word, at least used in my time in school, was resident assistant, or this is the guy who is the boss of the students on the floor. He's a monitor and a glorified babysitter, bless them. So. Basically, the uh, resident assistants or RAs, they are the poor saps who, thankfully, they're employed by the school, but they babysit drunk and unruly college kids. Uh, they're on call, they gotta solve problems, roommates fighting, uh, shenanigans, weird smells coming from your dorm. They're the people who have to deal with it, bless them. But Deary, as he's nicknamed by the guys on his hall floor, they all hate his guts, and rightfully so. He does get pranked a lot, but uh, this guy you don't really have a lot of sympathy for because he goes looking for trouble. Rather than be objective and chill the hell out with his own views, uh, David Dearborn has a very aggressive style, uh, very militant. He just gets in the face of anyone who he feels is below him with their own perspective. And he's really unrelenting in his overly testosterone, masculine bravado, which we all know in the world of King, the ones who puff out their chest the most, the tinier they are inside, just scared little babies. But Dearborn is definitely a poster child for the kinds of ideas and initiatives that are in that seem to be in control of society at this time. So Dearborn's very conservative. He's got pro-war sentiments, and he kind of loudly illustrates those to the reader. Um, and it's really showing the reader that this is the collective ideology where the majority of society is rooted at the moment. So it's it's kind of eye-opening to listen to David Dearborn and realize these students are coming from homes where this kind of rhetoric is spoken at the dinner table for sure. So Dearborn is always sharp and well-dressed with military haircut and he but he's, he's a jerk and he looks down on everyone. He's super condescending and I'm glad he's featured in this story to show the opposing force of why these counterculture movements were born, really. But what's also interesting is that even though Dearborn is seemingly Mr. Army perfect, one character by the name of Skip, who was in ROTC with him, says, quote, Dearborn was bad at everything except kissing ass. So, uh, Dearborn is actually a giant loser with a clean-cut facade, and uh, King does really well by giving us a lot of those throughout his work, but 
yeah dearborn is our villain number four stoke jones or rip rip so um stoke jones doesn't get a lot of screen time but his presence is felt even when he's not on the page so stoke is pretty much called rip rip throughout the story and what's strange is that it, it, what's strange about the nickname is it's kind of from his own doing so rip rip is the phrase that Stoke is constantly muttering under his breath as he walks by you and no one really knows why. So this character is disabled. He walks around in leg braces and crutches and we do learn that it was from a tragic car accident but Stoke is also someone who really does not want your pity. He is not into people at all. He wants to be left alone. His hair hangs in front of his eyes. He wants to sit by himself. If you sit next to him, he will quickly leave. He is very private and not very personable at all. But this is a character who really gets things moving in a big way. And his actions send a huge shockwave throughout the school and really split everyone into two groups. Groups. And it's Mr. Stoke Jones who starts wearing the quote sparrow track on the back of his jacket and come to find out it's the peace sign or the nuclear disarmament sign that people are just getting to know and become familiar with, which is really cool. So everyone else in the story seems to just be awakening to the new world and the new sort of side of anti-war sentiments, but Stoke Jones seems really dyed in the wool of social justice. He is really, uh, from the start, always uh, kind of been there, and he's the outlier for his handicap. He makes himself a pariah with his own kind of social, anti-social oddness, but his presence is really impactful, and he is the catalyst for so much in this story, and he is the guy who wears the peace sign first. So this character, Stoke Jones, super duper fascinating, guys. And then number five, we have our girl, Carol Gerber, who is a work-study student who knows, she comes to know Pete Riley because they both work in the cafeteria together, and Carol, when we meet her again, is dating Sully John and has been for a few years, and quick spoiler, but she does cheat on Sully John with Pete because uh, she and Pete have some nice deep talks together and eventually can't really deny the sparks between them. So both of them decide to just fall into lust and they have a super, at least I think it's romantic, maybe, um, it's sexy. It's definitely sexy. I think it's, it's, it's a sexy night between the two of them. Um, but what's really compelling is that concerning Carol, King does something really cool. So King does not place her in the lovesick teenage girl role. So when we meet Carol again, her parents are divorced, her mom, we come to learn, is an alcoholic, she's not in love with Sully John anymore, and actually I don't think she ever was in love with Sully John. And, uh, you know, the this <laughs> when it comes to Sully John, she is sort of unkind when she she reflects on her relationship with him. But 
what is so cool is that she has such ownership of her life that it's really honestly inspiring and I was very surprised by it. So she tells Pete, this 17 year old girl, she tells Pete right away, you know, it's not a direct quote, but what she says is, yo, like we can do this. I'm down to have an experience with you, but we are temporary. We are straight up not gonna hang on for very long. Like we're gonna end. So just know this is not a permanent thing. And she meant it. Girlfriend meant it. And I just, I love it. And I love that. uh, Oh my gosh. We also have this awesome moment when Carol tells Pete about Bobby Garfield and Pete can tell that Bobby completely changed Carol's life and no guy can really match it in terms of just how much he means to her. And it makes Pete super jealous, but also makes him realize that as much as he would like to bridal Carol and make her his and date and be um, monogamous and, you know, sort of have this partnership together, he can't reach her. She's not allowing herself to be reached. She's on her own course. And that course is revealed in the following stories. But it was so cool to see a more grown-up, more more like super grown-up Carol who's very independent, very adult, unsentimental, in control. And so I don't know if this is just callousing or King has just made her maybe fearful of getting hurt. So she's very detached. But either way, it was really interesting to see the female represented, to see him represent Carol as a really strong female instead of a lovesick damsel, which I was surprised about. So I enjoyed that. Before we head out, I wanted to share one of my favorite passages from the story where our narrator, Pete Riley, is home for the Thanksgiving holiday. He's just broke the heart of his high school girlfriend, Anne Marie, who he cheated on with Carol at school. And he kind of makes a bold statement in this passage. And this chunk highlights how with this, with what Pete does, he kind of chooses his own path for the next several years. And it's a great character reveal for Pete. This is on page 354 and 355. Our telephone, a Bakelite dinosaur with a rotary dial, was on a table in the front hall. In the drawer beneath it was the Gates Falls phone book, my mom's address book, and a litter of writing implements. One was a black laundry marker. I took it back to the kitchen table and sat down again. I spread my high school jacket over my knees, then used the marker to make a large sparrow track on the back. As I worked, I felt the nervous tension draining out of my muscles. It occurred to me that I could award myself my own letter if I wanted, and that was sort of what I was doing. When I was done, I held the jacket up and took a look. In the faint white light of the fluorescent bar, what I'd drawn looked harsh and declamatory declamatory and somehow childish. But I liked it. I liked that motherfucker. I wasn't sure what I thought about the war even then, but I liked that sparrow track quite a lot, and I felt as if I could finally go to sleep. 
drawing it had done that much for me anyway. I rinsed out my milk glass and went upstairs with my jacket under my arm. I stuck it in the closet and then lay down. I thought of Carol putting my hand inside her sweater and the taste of her breath in my mouth. I thought of how we had only we had been only ourselves behind the fogged up windows of my old station wagon, maybe our best selves. And I thought how I thought of how we had laughed as we stood watching the tatters of my gold water sticker blow away from the steam plant parking lot. I was thinking about that when I fell asleep. I took my modified high school jacket back to school on Sunday, packed into my suitcase. Despite her freshly voiced doubts about Mr. Johnson's and Mr. McNamara's war, my mom would have had lots of questions about the sparrow track, and I didn't have answers to give. Not yet. I felt equipped to wear the jacket, though, and I did. I spilled beer and cigarette ashes on it, puked on it, bled on it, got tear-gassed in Chicago while wearing it and screaming, THE WHOLE WORLD IS WATCHING! at the top of my lungs. Girls cried on the entwined GF on the left breast. By my senior year, those letters were dingy gray instead of white, and one girl lay on it while we made love. We did it with no protection, so probably there's a trace of semen on the quilted lining, too. But the time, by the time I packed up and left LSD Acres in, the, in 1970, the peace sign I drew on the back of my mother's kitchen was only a shadow, but the shadow remained. Others might not see it, but I knew what it was. Oh my gosh. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I hope you guys enjoyed that. So to recap our characters, some of the gems of Hearts in Atlantis. Number one, Ronnie Malenfant. Number two, Goody Two-Shoes, sweet little angel, Pete Riley's roommate, Nate Hoppenstand. Number three, David Dearborn, hall monitor from hell. Number four, Stoke Jones, or Rip Rip, the catalyst of many things. And number five, Carol Gerber. So my final thoughts, ladies and gentlemen, on Hearts in Atlantis. I really, really liked it, and I think in time I might love it, mostly because there is a lot, a lot about this story that makes me think of Joyland. So for those of you who are new to the show, the novel Joyland, a hard case crime story that King released in 2013, is one of my favorite top five Stephen King novels, and please listen to my coverage on it if you haven't already, but the main character in Joyland, Mr. Devin Jones, has the same cafeteria job at the same school as Pete Riley only a few years later, I believe in 1973. So he has the same cafeteria job as, as Pete and Carol. And he, like Pete, gets his heart broken, which opens him up to a new bend in the road, a different destiny. But there seems to be a lot of little Joyland seedlings here and there, and a ton of collegiate nostalgia and strong themes showing not only the pain of early adulthood, the stress of being a student, but the power behind it as well, especially in times of great social change. And looking back, the fall of freshman year, if you look at it as a whole, it is such a definitive time for a lot of people. It really separates men from boys, 
Most sink and some swim, but it's a time where one is really, really alive to new ways of thinking, new ways of being, ideas, new people. And in this story, a card game not only unites everyone, but simultaneously tears everyone apart. So I really, really like it. And I know in like a week, I'm going to adore it. So uh, maybe for right now, we should just say I loved it. I did. <laughs> I loved it. There's a lot to like here. There's a lot to love here. The characters are rich. The symbolic nature of these characters are even richer. The nostalgia is high in the sky. And I like that King brings us back to his own freshman year experience and shows what a definitive time this was for American teenagers. So for those of you who didn't know, Mr. King was 18 years old in 1966 and he was a student at the University of Maine until 1970. So this is very close to his chest, I think. So also, for those of you interested in early King, The Long Walk is his first novel written at the age of 18, which I covered a few weeks ago, written by Richard Bachman, but so, so good. And uh, yeah, that's all I've got, guys, concerning Hearts and Atlantis. So this is such a character-rich story, lots of wonderful cultural immersion. Um, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I am a fan. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I will reveal in the next couple sections whether I feel Hearts in Atlantis was stronger than last week's story, Low Men in Yellow Coats. I think that might be an interesting debate. But for now, we are all finished here, and let's head into our next story, Blind Willie. I'll see you there. Hey everybody, thank you for sticking with me. We are now on to our third story in the Hearts in Atlantis collection, and this one is called Blind Willie. And oh my goodness, friends, do we take a really sharp turn from the first two stories? As with Blind Willie, we're for the most part pretty stripped of dialogue, depleted of characters, and what we have provided to us is a very meditative narrative where we follow one character through approximately 12 to 18 hours of a typical, I have that in quotes, day in New York City. So, oh my gosh, uh, thinking about this story, guys, it's quite fascinating for me in terms of reader observation. And I feel what King is doing with this one is presenting a character, presenting behavior, and allowing the reader to kind of put on that scientist hat to just absorb, observe what's going on, and draw their own conclusions on whether they feel it's wrong, it's right, justified, criminal. And honestly, guys, having trucked through the first two very sort of heavy, super detailed uh, million character stories, uh, what we get here is like a left field, 
narrative where as the reader you're ready to keep going uh on you're, you're ready to keep trucking along with these characters with the story with the time period but then we get this pretty significant jump in time this really subdued quiet ruminating story where we have a total background character guys this person was on no one's radar at all he's mentioned only slightly in low men in yellow coats he pops up there and has connections to several people we know but that's about it he's just yeah so this is uh, okay, let's get into it. It's it's very very interesting. So Blind Willie takes place in 1983. So this is our first post Vietnam narrative, and in this story we do get a bit of the horrifying details of the war and of this character's experience with the war. And uh, within the story, the narrative, and the unfolding of this person's day we learn what war has done to this person individually to create a very peculiar new reality with a kind of skewed, very strange, spiritually, traditionally rooted, obsessive role play. <laughs> and uh, friends, the whole thing is really just... Um, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and it's just very fascinating for me. So here's my story, or my, no, my summary, not my story. Here's my summary of what Blind Willie is all about. So Blind Willie is the story of Willie Shearman, who, as a boy, helped a bully hurt a neighborhood girl. Willie is a haunted man who, after Vietnam and after learning of neighborhood girls' adult fate, decides to create a double life where he commutes into New York City every morning, takes the elevator to a high-rise office, and gathers supplies that transform him into Blind Willie, a disabled Vietnam veteran who begs for spare change outside of St. Pat Patrick's Cathedral, and for over 10 years conducts this daily act of penance for the salvation of his own soul. The only problem is, local police officer, Officer Wheelock, has caught on to Willie's game, and although he can't prove it, he's close to finding out everything, and Willie is now considering another con in order to protect his double-hidden life. Oh my gosh, guys. Okay. So this is such a different story, friends, and it's really kind of thrown me for a loop in my analysis considering what the first two stories were. So this one takes place coincidentally around the Christmas holiday. The pacing is much slower, the details are very heavy, and the overall reveal of action is much slower, which kind of takes the reader by surprise, I think, when we had Low Men in Yellow Coats, which is just abundantly rich and engaging, as well as Hearts in Atlantis with all the new students and people and names we're meeting and all of the comedy. And, and then with this one, uh, King structures the story, which I find really cool, by revealing it in chunks of time. So the overall structure I really enjoy as we begin at 6 a.m. when Willie Shearman wakes up. He has a relatively normal morning with his wife and then heads into the city. 
And around 8 a.m., the reader has realized that this guy's office is not what it seems. It's a very beautiful, subtle, kind of poetic way King goes about describing something's not right here. There's a copy machine that has never been used. There are papers on the desk that mean absolutely nothing. They're just like junk paper. The phone line never makes any calls. And then there's a secret kind of passageway, passage compartment with a briefcase and supplies. And it's revealed to the reader in tiny descriptive breadcrumbs that this guy has an incredibly methodical path he takes. He's got a costume he wears, makeup he puts on, and he becomes Blind Willie. So what we know about Willie Shearman previously in the collection is that he's one of the punk kids from Low Men in Yellow Coats. He is a part of Harry Doolin's gang and attends St. Gabriel's Catholic School. And Willie, in particular, is the one who holds Carol Gerber down while Harry Doolin hurts her with a bat, dislocates her arm, truly horrible stuff, guys. We also learn that during Blonde... Willie... <laughs> I totally had a, uh, like, minor two thoughts in my mind friends just crashed into each other so what we had there was a verbal hindenburg okay so we learn that willie shearman in vietnam so he did go and he helped sully john so sully john was over there in vietnam they coincidentally found each other again and he helped Sully John. I guess Sully John was incredibly injured. We're gonna learn more about that in our next tale. But Willie helped Sully John, and while he was in Vietnam, Willie was nearly blinded by an injury. So he came very close to being permanently blinded. So what's incredibly interesting about this story, guys, is that Willie seems to be this silent sufferer who feels incredibly guilty. Just this heavy guilt weighs this guy down about not only what he did to Carol uh, in childhood, but also to Bobby. And more on that in a little bit, because in Willie's totally faux, totally fake office, he has a few notebooks filled with millions of lines of written penance in which the sentence, I am heartily sorry, is written according to the text about two million times, which is crazy. He just has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks filled with that exact phrase written over and over and over again, which is very, uh, very haunting image when you think about it. And then in the office, he also has Bobby Garfield's baseball glove that he stole and never gave gave back and he wrote his own name on it. It seems like it wasn't exactly a go into Bobby's house and steal it. I think the glove was left in the forest from one of the events in Low Men in Yellow Coats and Willie grabbed it and never gave it back and he tried to possess it for himself and wrote his own name on it. Tried to like make it his and felt incredibly guilty about that because Bobby Garfield's name is still visible on it. So lots of powerful visual details in this story. 
In addition to the glove, the notebook full of written pennants, there are also several binders of photos and newspaper articles that have cataloged Carol Gerber's life, her adult life. Little creepy, but it makes sense because as the reader comes to find out, Carol got involved with a dangerous group of militant anti-war folk, which militant anti-war folk is a terrible oxymoron, but there were extremists and she ended up becoming a part of a domestic terrorist organization and setting off some bombs, which ultimately leads to Carol's fate at the age of 22, I believe, 22 or 23, according to Willie Shearman's articles that he's been saving. So that's kind of where we find out about what happened to Carol at the end of Hearts in Atlantis. We knew she was sort of getting passionate about anti-war pro protests. She, that's sort of where her character exits from Hearts in Atlantis. And now in this story, Carol is yet again our continuing thread throughout the collection and we find out she's really gotten into some bad stuff and Willie blames himself. So in this story, Willie takes on this fake identity that is derived from shame and guilt so much guilt over Carol's fate. I will go over Carol's fate in a little bit, uh, a little bit um, greater detail with our next tale. He also feels incredibly guilty for Bobby Garfield that he took his glove and decides that just he cooked up this double life and decides that this is the way he can atone. And then, as I mentioned previously, we do have a scenario in which actual blindness kind of happened to Willie in Vietnam. He was very close to permanently losing his sight forever, uh, but it did return. And so I, I guess that he decides that as punishment or as penance, he's going to pretend every single day that it was real and that he truly was blinded in Vietnam. So in his day-to-day, -day, Willie carries a cardboard sign that explains he was disabled in Vietnam and that he's asking for money to fund his son's school. And according to Willie, he makes quite a bit of money. Like, this is a very lucrative business uh, panhandling and he has a super sleek case where there's like trick compartments where coins vanish into the bottom and there are rolls like stacks of dollar bills that Willie habitually has a method of stowing and wrapping up. He does pretty well in terms of uh, money gathering. Um, and so I guess in terms of the penance part, it's not extensively spoken about, but it seems as if much of what he earns is donated to the Catholic Church. So here's what it says about the actual money on page 450. So this is kind of, I want to read you this passage. This is on 450. He opens his case, quickly sets aside the rolls of bills. These he will carry home in his Mark Cross beef briefcase, then fills four bags with coins. In a far corner of the storage room is a battered old metal cabinet simply marked parts. Willie swings it open. 
There is no lock to contend with, and reveals another hundred or so coin-stuffed bags. A dozen times a year, he and Sharon tour the midtown churches, pushing these bags through the contribution slots or hinged package delivery doors when they will fit, simply leaving them by the door when they won't. The lion's share always goes to St. Pat's, where he spends his days wearing dark glasses and a sign. But not every day, he thinks, now undressing. I don't have to be there every day. And he thinks again that maybe Bill, Willie, and Blind Willie Garfield will take the week after Christmas off. In that week, there might be a way to handle Officer Wheelock. More on that in a little bit, but as you can see, um, so it sounds like he is donating the money, but in order to keep up appearances, he has to be taking a cut for himself in order to continue fooling his wife, who thinks he goes into the city every day to make money in an office. So that is clearly happening. Um, but I'm sure with someone as duplicitous as Willie, which we come to find out in the narrative, he really is incredibly duplicitous. Um, he does not see the problem in maintaining the lie on all fronts. He, and so he'll kind of do whatever he has to in order to maintain this lie. But this, oh my gosh, guys, the more I dive into it, the more I dig. This is such an interesting character exploration. And if it was a little shorter, I would totally plug this story into one of my fiction classes so my students could take a look at it because it gets even more interesting, believe it or not. The layers of this onion get more immense because not only do we have this character who is living this completely double life, and it sounds like for approximately a decade or more, as he said, he began Blind Willie when Gerald Ford was in office. So, uh, yeah, day after day for over 10 years. But now, in his act of penance, this decade-long act is on the cusp of being foibled, and he is thinking about doing something criminal to get rid of Officer Wheelock. So another really interesting part in this 50-ish page story is we have a scene where Blind Willie hands Officer Wheelock an envelope enclosed with $300 cash, and rather than dip out and not start anything, Officer Wheelock decides to stir the pot a bit and tells Willie he's raising his rates to $500 a month in the new year, basically jerks his chain and says, one of these nights I'm just going to follow you and I'm going to see who you turn into. And I guess, according to Willie, Wheelock has never really said anything like that, so he's pretty shaken because the current rate of bribery is no longer working, ergo something else might need to be done. So folks, this guy is in the midst of a 10 year plus act of daily penance, but once met with an obstacle that could dissolve it, he's thinking about becoming someone different or creating another con to do away with Officer Wheelock. And it's, it's just nuts. And there's an actual quote where Willie is sussing out the details in his mind as he's begging for money. And he says, I could kill him, but I would be totally screwed if I kill him. So we, we jump to murder, guys. Murder! Like, how is this guy able to look himself in the mirror? It is such a strange... He is such a strange, totally rotten egg 
And he may have started with good intentions, but now the intentions are totally convoluted and mixed up in light and dark. And now he wants to go deeper into the con, take on another identity, and he is 100% contemplating murder. In the act of penance, murder. This character story is so crazy, guys. So our story concludes when we are at the end of the day. Uh, according to the structure of the story, we kind of had about a nine to five shift. And Willie's back at home. He's in bed with his wife having a general conversation about some friends they entertained. And he's just a normal guy with a double life secrets full of intentions of keeping it going for as long as he can and I I just yeah the character study of this friends I can't get over it it's so rich and great because I wonder if he just feels I I'm wondering if he feels completely entitled to rip people off because of his disabled veteran status like he just feels like this was my path I you know this is what I'm going to do. I'm cursed from being a Vietnam vet. Or if it's deeper than that, and if he feels like all his life since he was a boy and after he did that terrible thing to Carol Gerber, stole Bobby's glove, you know, if he believes genuinely his soul is doomed in general since childhood and you know, so it's not even the veteran status. It's it's as if he's sort of sorry for everything that happened in childhood on top of it all. So, yeah, it's like, uh, is this guy at this stage of his life, he's just kind of doubling down on his sinking deeper into this double life. Um, meaning, well, I've already been fooling and ripping people off forever. And now, I mean, what's a little murder to keep this game going? Like, I'm just gonna potentially get rid of somebody. Um, it seems he dances around with murder. He also thinks of just another trick trickery, more blackmail potentially. Because um, he's like, nobody's gonna ruin my game. Nobody's gonna ruin my plan of penance. So I'm just gonna continue this charade of my own guilt and... Oh, my friends. So, in the final epilogue notes of the collection, Mr. King, which this epilogue was actually much shorter than usual, King says, quote, an earlier and much different version of Blind Willie was featured in a collection called Antaeus in 1994. So, friends, this story is a bit of a recycled one. Uh, which I could see, I could see where he might have done a little interpolation, King, and plugged in the relevant Willie Shearman parts to a blank canvas character. But it works. I think the recycled nature of it um, makes me scratch my head a little bit, but it did, it does really work in terms of what King is doing by connecting it to the collection as a whole. And I really like the structure. I really liked the detailed, slow-paced narration and all of the questions I have, guys. It made me think of so many questions. So I liked this story quite a bit and we're gonna have to see as a whole how it measures up 
in the big sandwich of the Hearts in Atlantis collection. But when you get to Blind Willie, guys, there's a definite narrative shift. There's a tonal shift. This one is slower, deeper, a lot of observation where the reader has to become that scientist and kind of make your own deductions like, is this guy bad? I don't know. I really don't know. And that's where I'm at. I'm on the fence. A part of me thinks, oh yeah, this is a super duplicitous lying man who is a con artist. This is a con artist. And then the other parts where there's a little bit more empathy and remorse and I don't know, there's something else. So this is quite quite interesting, very fascinating, my friends. That's about all I have uh, in regards to Blind Willie. Next up, we have our final two stories. I'm going to sandwich them together. We have Why We're in Vietnam and the teeny tiny final chapter of Hearts in Atlantis called Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling. I'll see you guys there. Thank you everyone for hanging on with me through this exploration of Hearts in Atlantis. We've reached our final sections where we're going to look at our final two stories in the collection, why we're in Vietnam, as well as the super precious, really melancholy and delightful, heavenly shades of night are falling. So with this story, friends, why we're in Vietnam, I'm going to reveal a few character arcs and plot points and probably discuss more of what happens in the story that I would like, but as we are connecting these train tracks together, I'm noticing it's getting a little tricky to not reveal stuff, so just a heads up if you are avoiding spoilers. I'm going to do my best to remain vague, but whether or not I'm a, I'm a success in that is yet to be determined. Okay, let us now discuss the approximately 45-page story called Why We're in Vietnam. And with this, my guys, we have an entire chunk narrated by the much older very beaten down by life now 50 year old mr john sullivan aka the super happy go lucky sully john who was a part of the bobby carroll sully trio in our first story low men in yellow coats so we connect with sully uh pretty much right away here and the story very quickly dives into a really hard graphic, sad, post-Vietnam reality where Sully reveals really early on in the narrative that he has a legitimate ghost from Vietnam who he sees all the time. This ghost is a Vietnamese woman, a Mama San as they refer to her, and what's terrible about this ghost is that our old pal uh, from the individual story Hearts in Atlantis, Mr. Crass himself, Ronnie Malenfant, was in Sully John's uh, military company, his army company, and Ronnie, who was 
par for the course out of his mind at Vietnam, as many, many were, and why the hell wouldn't they be when they were actually in hell, but that's another tangent. So what's super tragic about this, this ghost, Ronnie is the one who killed the woman Sully is haunted by. Sully didn't do it, Ronnie did. It was quite brutal, and yet, this woman in the exact outfit and shoes she was wearing when she died appears to Sully off and on since he left Vietnam, and every time she pops up, she says nothing. She just looks at him. And it's really eerie and very creepy, but also incredibly sad. So this story, my friends, is very, very much soaked in sadness and heaviness as we're not only connecting with Sully John who was really injured in Vietnam, how he survived his intestines outside of his stomach is beyond me, but for us King readers that exact injury is a thing throughout King's work and many live through it, surprisingly, but Sully John was super duper wounded permanently in other areas. And in this story, we're hearing about the war, we learn of Willie Shearman's almost blindness, how he saved Sully John, we learn about Ronnie Malenfant going insane over there, and all of that simmers into the main plot of this story where Sully John is on his way to a funeral for a fellow soldier in his company named Pagano. So, Mr. Pagano died of pancreatic cancer, and at the funeral, Sully John is remembering the war and talking with his former lieutenant, last name Diefenbaker, which kind of reminded me of Dusander, the heinous Nazi, literal Nazi from Apt Pupil. Um, jump back to uh, Different Seasons Part 1 for my coverage on that, but he's talking with Lieutenant Diefenbaker and going down memory lane all over the place with pre-war, the actual war, post-war, and it's super melancholy and really, really beautifully written, and there are some great dialogue exchanges throughout. What's also really, really interesting in this narrative is we have a bit of magical realism in the final pages of the story. So Sully John leaves the funeral and gets stuck in traffic on his way back home to his life as a twice divorced, I believe. Actually, I think it's only once divorced. Uh, let me double check that. We'll just say once divorced for now. But a once divorced Chevy car dealership owner, and while he's gridlocked in traffic, all of a sudden there is falling debris out of the sky and what appears to be explosions and people getting squashed and killed and it's absolute melee. And the images King uses, they're very strange very visceral and it kind of reminds me of like a Lewis Carroll Alice in Wonderland kind of scene when she's falling down the rabbit hole and there's just like floating clocks and all sorts of craziness around her. It's the very fallingness of it all that uh, reminds me of that, but we have giant pianos crashing to the ground, TVs, refrigerators, 
um, lawnmowers, cars, very heavy items squashing people. And for a minute, as the reader, I was convinced this was really happening as the details of this highway massacre are slowly being revealed. It seemed plausible, my guys. I don't know why, but it did. And uh, as I was thinking about it, it could also be that this story kind of reminded me of another King story from this year called The Life of Chuck, a novella from the newest collection called If It Bleeds. In The Life of Chuck, there was some very sci-fi-esque magical realism similar to that. We've got some really unsettling, very trippy images and it kind of was really happening in that story. So, uh, reminded me a lot of this one, but what's incredibly sad is as all of this um, terrible, crazy things falling, explosions, this massacre is unfolding, Sully John immediately returns back to the jungle in his mind. And this is the heartbreaking punch of the story. And it kind of like talking about it right now with you guys just makes me super emotional because this war was so terrible. I mean, all wars are awful, but Vietnam is the worst, I feel, as I've mentioned in earlier sections, because in this war, troops were not supported back home. They they got home totally injured and messed up and they were spit on and insulted and degraded and anyway I'm trying not to go off on a tangent but the hard-hitting gut punch of this story is the conversation between Sully and Dean Baker where it's alluded to the fact that no one left Vietnam no one ever left the jungle and what a terrifying absolutely mind-shattering idea that I feel many of those suffering with PTSD must deal with that every day that their minds never left and they never really came home and they can't come home and oh my friends it's just overwhelmingly tragic and really turned my mashed heart into peanut butter like this story smashed it into a paste because the heaviness of sacrifice and the lingering trauma that never ever went away for these men and when Sully John is in this traffic jam all of the painful past comes back in a sort of just tsunami wave and Sully John is immediately a soldier again in his mind while he's stuck in traffic and can't move. So I have an example I really want to read for you guys that starts on page 497. This is one of those really strongly written passages where the reader steps into the Church of King, guys, and we hear some preaching. We hear a word because it's very, very powerful. So this, to me, this section uh, that I'm about to read is the real heart of the story, and it might actually be the heart of the collection that King has been building to. So once more, this is the conversation between Lieutenant 
Lieutenant Diefenbaker and Sully John about the existential reality of post-Vietnam and the big mess of it all and this generation, all the things. But what's also cool, King being a master, he ties back Sully John's story to Carol and Bobby and more on that in just a minute. But here is, for me, the best chunk of writing in Why We're in Vietnam. Because we never got out, we never got out of the green, our generation died there. That sounds a little, a little what? A little pretentious? You bet. A little silly? You bet. A little self-regarding? Yes, sir. But that's us. That's us all over. What have we done since Nam Sully? Those of us who went, those of us who marched and protested, those of us who just sat home watching the Dallas Cowboys and drinking beer and farting into the sofa cushions? Color was seeping into the new lieutenant's cheeks. He had the look of a man who has found his hobby horse and is now climbing on, helpless to do anything but ride. He held up his hands and began popping fingers the way Sully had when talking about the legacies of the Vietnam experience. Well, let's see. We're the generation that invented Super Mario Brothers, the ATV, laser missile guidance systems, and crack cocaine. We discovered Richard Simmons, Scott Peck, and Martha Stewart Living. Our idea of a major lifestyle change is buying a dog. The girls who burn their bras now buy their lingerie from Victoria's Secret, and the boys who fucked fearlessly for peace are now fat guys who sit around in the front of their computer screens, late at night pulling their puddings while they look at pictures of naked 18-year-olds on the internet. That's us, brother. We like to watch. Movies, video games, live car chase footage, fistfights on the Jerry Springer show, Mark McGuire, World Federation wrestling, impeachment hearings, we don't care. We just like to watch. But there was a time, don't laugh, but there was a time when it was really all in our hands. Do you know that? Sully nodded, thinking of Carol. Not the version of her sitting on the sofa with him and her wine-smelling mother. Not the one flipping the peace sign at the camera while the blood ran down the side of her face, either. That one was already too late and too crazy. You could see it in her smile, read it in the sign, where screaming words forbade all discussion. Rather, he thought of Carol on the day her mother had taken all of them to Savin Rock. His friend Bobby had won some money from a three-card Monty dealer that day, and Carol had worn her blue bathing suit on the beach, and sometimes she'd give Bobby that look. That one that said he was killing her and the death was sweet. It had been in their hands then, he was quite sure of it, but kids lose everything. Kids have slippery fingers and holes in their pockets and they lose everything. We filled up our wallets on the stock market and went to the gym and booked therapy sessions to get in touch with ourselves. South America is burning. Malaysia is burning. Fuck it, Viet fucking Vietnam is burning. And we finally got past that self-hating thing. Finally got to like ourselves. So that's okay. Sully thought of Malenfant getting in touch with himself, learning to like the inner Ronnie and suppress to shudder. All of Diefenbaker's fingers were held up in front of his face and poked out. To Sully, he looked like Al Johnson getting ready to sing Mamie. Diefenbaker seemed to become aware of this at the same moment Sully did and lowered his hands. He looked tired and distracted and unhappy. 
I like lots of people our age when they're one by one, he said, but I loathe and despise my generation, Sully. We had an opportunity to change everything. We actually did. Instead, we settled for designer jeans, two tickets to Mariah Carey at Radio City Music Hall, frequent flyer miles, James Cameron's Titanic, and retirement portfolios. The only generation even close to us in pure, selfish self-indulgence is the so-called lost generation of the 20s, and at least most of them had the decency to stay drunk. We couldn't even do that. Man, we suck. The new lieutenant was close to tears. Sully saw. Deef. You know the price of selling out the future, Sully John? You can never really leave the past. You can never get over. My thesis is that you're really not in New York at all. You're in the Delta, leaning back against a tree, stoned and rubbing bug dope on the back of your neck. Packer's still the man because it's still 1969. Everything you think of as your later life is a big fucking pop bubble, and it's better that way. Vietnam is better. That's why we stay there. <gasps> oh, my guys, I loved that so much. Really hard hitting, super duper hard. So what we also learn from Sully John is that Carol is presumed deceased for her involvement in the anti-war group that went way too far. She got way in over her head. We also learned about that in Blind Willie through the newspaper articles that Willie kept in his office that Carol just got in way too deep and died because of it. What's very sad, though, is Sully John has nothing but ugly words to say about Carol. He really doesn't sympathize. Uh, he's very angry at her for her choices. But he's also, and I don't know if it's angry or rather just, I don't know, but he's, I think there's something there against Carol for loving Bobby more than him. So, as I mentioned, we find out in Hearts in Atlantis that Carol and Sully John were dating and that they were each other's first time sexual partners. And Carol was just, you know, when we meet her in Hearts in Atlantis as a 17 year old, she is totally a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. She really is. She's just not interested in being tied down. Um, but, uh, Although it's not clear in the story if Sully John resents her for breaking up with him and for cheating on him, because she totally did, um, I think that when we look at Carol and concerning what Carol really loves, it's Bobby. It's, it's, so I think there's, in regards to Sully John's story, I think there's a bit of envy that Carol's heart since childhood belonged to Bobby in a way that Sully John couldn't reach. Couldn't even get close to it, to it, but he knew about it. He just knew that Carol's heart would never ever view him or value him the way it did Bobby. So there is some evidence for resentment, um, or really just reflection, maybe some puzzlement on why life went in the direction it did with Sully John's story. And then, um, jumping back to Blind Willie for just a second, we do kind of have some Shakespearean um, uh, dramatic irony because Willie realized that when he saved Sully John in Vietnam, Sully John never found out 
what happened to Carol. He never knew that Carol was really almost killed by Harry Doolin and her arm was dislocated. So Carol never ever told Sully John. And that's huge. That's a huge thing. And that's kind of why the very tragic Shakespearean um, circumstance of Sully not knowing, therefore he's aware how deeply Carol will always love Bobby, but he's not, he doesn't understand why. He doesn't understand that Bobby saved Carol's life. And the reader knows that, the audience knows that, but Sully never did. And that's the sad thing is I think there's maybe a little bit of like, why couldn't I be like Bobby? Or why wasn't I just as good as Bobby? And, you know, we dated, we were each other's first loves or something like that. And so I really enjoy that kind of dramatic irony where the reader knows um, Sully never found out. And then I think that actually played into Blind Willie's penance a little bit is he felt terrible. This guy never knew that Willie was the bad guy, that Willie really helped hurt Carol. Oh, it's this wonderful soap opera, guys. It really, really is. So this is a bit of a spoiler regarding um, this story. So if you don't want to hear it, please pause now. I'll give you a second. Okay. So as this crazy avalanche, we're on the highway stuck in traffic with Sully John. This avalanche of heavy objects is crushing the freeway and everyone around um, Sully John in their cars. The mama-san, who has been in the passenger seat with Sully John since he got in the car heading home from Pagano's funeral, Sully's been talking to her the entire time, just reminiscent stuff. Well, it's in this moment where the mama-san actually says words for the first time in 30 years to Sully John. And she looks at him and she tells him, poor American boy, I'll keep you safe. So, so yeah, it's super sad and heavily poetic. And in the final pages of this story, my friends, it's revealed in a newspaper article that a decorated Vietnam veteran died of a heart attack while stuck in traffic. So, this entire story took place in 1999, um, and this revelation that of Diefenbaker reading the newspaper article leads to our next and final story. So this final, final section is the last little chapter uh, that will wrap up this very somber collection of narratives heavily shades of night are falling. Let's head into this last precious final set of thoughts as well as my overall ideas and questions on the beautifully written Hearts in Atlantis. I'll meet you guys there. All right, everybody, we've come back around to the old house in Harwich, Connecticut. We made it to the end. 
Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling is the final note of the Hearts in Atlantis collection, and the title comes from the chorus within a song called Twilight Time by The Platters, which I highly recommend listening to on YouTube or whatever streaming service you've got to put yourself in the vibration of this final melancholic squeeze from King. And for those of us who read King, often know that we have music and lyrics all over his work because King is not only a musician himself, but an overall huge music fan and I think the sound of a piece, especially knowing that King is channeling a certain song or a certain group as he's writing it. In my uh, experience, it kind of gets you closer to the work in a way. So uh, please listen to a super pretty, sweet song that goes well with this last breath from the Hearts in Atlantis collection. So what's interesting is that the song Twilight Time was released in the year 1958. So for this final 14 or so pages in the collection, King takes us all the way back around to the beginning, and we as the reader once again meet up with a 50-year-old Bobby Garfield who heard about Sully John's heart attack in the newspaper article, decides to come home to Harwich, Connecticut in order to go to the funeral. So after the service, he's walking around town, letting the past fill his mind, and he's thinking about Carol. And another big spoiler for you, avoid it if you must, but a woman named Denise Schoonover uh, comes up to Bobby while he's on the bleachers, reminiscing, listening to some 50s music on a handheld radio, so he definitely must be at one of the old ball fields he used to frequent as a kid. Um, but Denise gets real close to Bobby and says something straight out of the past, a line straight from the mouth of Carol Gerber, because bingo, it's Carol. Not dead, alive. New identity, new life, she's an instructor at Vassar, and definitely not dead. And when Bobby sees her, we have a little physical scarring on her face from past involvements. And the scar that King briefly describes on her reminds me of the scarred face of another character inside the novel 112263. If you guys have read that epically wonderful book, um, hopefully you remember who I'm mentioning and you're picking up what I'm putting down, uh, if it sounds familiar. Just a little connection there, but this scene between Bobby and Carol is a beautiful reunion, friends. It's very touching. Bobby and Carol reconnect, everything comes full circle, gorgeous lines, and we find out Bobby's a carpenter, he's married uh, to a professional photographer, he has three grown children, and this is surprising and really nice information because at the end of Low Men in Yellow Coats, I think Bobby must have been around 13, 14, he was definitely at the end of that story on the Rebel Without a Cause road where he was so angry and sad 
that it seemed as though he was just going to stay locked up off and on, but it looks like somewhere along those adolescent years, he might have grown up a little bit, he might have discovered new joy, new love, something nice. So I wish we would have had more on that, more on that in a bit. Um, but in such a short space, King reunites uh, Bobby and Carol, but Bobby did not come empty-handed as he has a FedEx package in which his old baseball glove, the one Blind Willie had and the one Sully John had, I'm going to let you guys find out on your own how it made its way back to Bobby, um, but inside the glove is a note for Carol. So, and this FedEx package well, um, that's from uh, none other than our dear friend Ted Brodigan, who, as a breaker, again, guys, I have really no idea uh, what that is other than it has to do with the Dark Tower, so I don't know what a breaker is, but it's mentioned twice in this collection. Um, the Gunslinger is coming next month, I promise, guys. <laughs> My Dark Tower drought will end next month, but Ted Brodigan, Breaker Ted, has sent the glove to Bobby with a note for Carol, so Ted knew Carol was alive. Bobby did not, and now they're both aware of how special Ted is, how above time he must be, because in 40 years, how was Ted able to do all this? How was he able to get the glove back to Bobby and then put a note that Carol reads with extra special significance in it? So the note uh, Carol reads connects the reader back to Peter Riley from the Hearts in Atlanta story. So all of our train tracks meet up in this space and it's very touching, very touching indeed, folks. And it ends. It's reminiscent, very short, and it's a fade out to the platter song. And that's the book, folks, all done. So I do wish we had a bit more with this little story. I I am a bit greedy. I am admitting that. A little bit greedy. And when I stop for a second and just breathe and calm it down, I, and when I suspend my desire for more, I am content with what King gave us as it really started with Bobby and Carol. They forged something very special together. They bonded through childhood and adolescent electricity, those moments in life that define us and give us those big spoonfuls of self-discovery, um, but they also bonded through trauma, and that trauma sort of melded, is mold, melded, molded, <laughs> melted? Um, we're running out of, Kim C's running out of gas verbally, um, but it, the trauma bonded them across time. And because of that, they were always a part of each other in a way that I don't even know if they really know how powerful it was. So 
I love, love, love that King brought it back around and allowed these stories to sink in between the two of them and their connection to Ted. So I felt this was a very strong ending to the book, most definitely. A really nice final moment when I stop my greed <laughs> for just a second, when I press the pause button and wanting more, when I do take a look at this beautiful moment between Bobby and Carol, it is really, really Really nice. So now that we are complete, we have covered all five stories. Guys, we did it. I have just a few thoughts on this collection, just a tiny morsel of things to say before we head out. And like we've kind of done with each section, I'm just going to do a giant hodgepodge of what I liked, what I didn't like, um, more questions I have, observations. Uh, so we're going to have just like a big melting pot of these final thoughts and that's how I'm going to structure this last chunk. Alright, for me, ladies and gentlemen, the story Low Men in Yellow Coats, the complete episode of um, the Hearts in Atlantis Part 1, the focus of that episode, Low Men in Yellow Coats stole the show for me, guys. It did. It's awesome and wonderful and rightly so. It's our longest story. We have incredible characters, wonderful King 60s immersion. There's so much working. However, my question is, even though it is my favorite of the collection, I'm wondering why King had to make it a really heavy-handed Dark Tower standout story. Granted, hear me out, put your pitchforks down, I'm not speaking negatively on the Dark Tower, not at all. But when I look at the story as a whole, I don't feel it would have lost any power at all. No power would have been lost in the slightest if the Dark Tower components were omitted and Ted Brodigan just could have been a, a, a guy with a powerful clairvoyant gift and perhaps the men after him were just loan sharks or mafia and just wanted to capture Ted because he owed them XYZ etc. Or Ted could have been just a random time traveler. So perhaps I may feel differently once I read The Dark Tower, but I only bring this up because I think often about brand new King readers because this is a podcast that is definitely for constant readers, but it's also to spread the word to non-King readers, right? So I always have them in mind. And anybody who's really new to King, let's say he picks up Hearts in Atlantis and he starts to read Low Men in Yellow Coats and quickly, uh, you know, dozen pages in is like, what the heck is going on? So thankfully, when I read the story, I was grateful to have had some meager knowledge about the tower to get me through. But I think about new people, people like my dad who read King in the 80s, took a very, very long break and then got back into him in the early 2000s and picked up hearts and was like, what the hell is going on with this Crimson King and other worlds and 
And so I, I wish there was a preamble, kind of like there was with the story Little Sisters of Aluria inside the Everything's Eventual collection in which King says, hey everybody, this is a Dark Tower story. Um, I wish there could have been maybe a little warning or a little something to connect the dots like, you know, um, the Crimson King is from Midworld or something. Um, or I wish that maybe there could have been more subtle Dark Tower elements to perhaps allow layman readers who have zero idea what the Dark Tower is, because there's a lot of us out there, um, feel like they can appreciate a beautifully written, very nostalgic story. I, for me guys, this, oh my god, this story was so good. It was so good. It was so good. It was so beautifully written that I just don't want any reader to feel marginalized or confused. And I think as the reader starts to learn about Ted brought against blackouts and the low men and the red eye of the Crimson King, we start to sink into the fantastical and if you are not a Dark Tower person, there's like this sort of crevasse or a ravine or a big crack that starts to form between you and the material and it just becomes more and more unfamiliar and you kind of like, you're in danger of losing the reader and that's devastating because this story is incredible. And I want all readers to love it and not feel like they can't connect to it because there is a really large presence of this huge other thing they have no idea about. So just my thoughts, just my five cents, my little nickel I'm throwing into the pool there. I wonder if perhaps this story or this collection in general would have gained more readers and it might not be on the underrated list and maybe it could have had the chance to be more mainstream if King would have given us a really melancholic literary fiction piece about a young boy in search of a father figure and a wonderful clairvoyant time traveler named Ted who, you know, wasn't able to hang around as long as he would have liked because of bad guys. Normal, non-fantastical bad guys and the whole thing is set in the 1960s. Something like that. Again, once more passionate tower junkies, tower fans, I am not, I repeat, I am not knocking the tower at all, not at all, and I'm actually thrilled, so excited to start my journey. I'm just brainstorming a way in which this story could have really had a wider audience and not alienate anyone at all. So just my thoughts on that. So the component I really, really liked in all five stories, and this is what's so great, is that all five stories have it, is that Carol Gerber is the, she as a character is this golden thread running through every story. In every single story, Carol Gerber is present, and it's so good, guys. It's working so well. She is either physically in the story, or she's being talked about, referred to. There is consistent mentioning of this character over a 40-year period, and that device, that what King does with that, 
makes it so that Carol has this immense sort of talismanic kind of appeal. She's like this larger than life kind of icon, this um, monolithic presence where it's like Carol, 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 and she becomes larger than life and it's working really well. Having said that about Carol, I felt the same kind of thread treatment should have been attributed to Bobby Garfield as well. So Bobby is mentioned in the stories in every single one. I believe he does get a little blip, but not in the same way as Carol. And I kind of wish Bobby Garfield would have had the same sort of totem-esque quality that Carol had because, oh my guys, Bobby is a wonderful character absolutely I'm in love with him and I wish we had more of him. In Blind Willie, we barely, barely get a mention of Bobby aside from the baseball glove. And then in Sully John's story, there's also just a little tiny mention uh, referring back to Bobby in childhood. And I just wish Bobby could have had the same powerful presence as Carol because King gives us both of them at the end. And I wish we could have had dual representation and two threads intertwined through each other and the connected stories. So I wish that Bobby Garfield's present would have, presence would have been just as strong as Carol's. Um, because when we finally get to Bobby in the last few pages of the collection, it's like, oh my god, where the hell have you been? Whereas with Carol, we've kind of been following her life and path and um, demise in quotes and memory the entire time. So there's more of a closeness and connection to Carol than with Bobby. And I wanted Bobby, guys. Bobby is epic and great. And I think he should have had that same talismanic treatment that Carol got. So at, uh, I think the dueling thread could have really worked because Bobby is just as strong, if not maybe stronger than Carol, because Bobby had all that connection to Ted. So it, it just couldn't have been epic. So at the end of Low Men in Yellow Coats, Bobby is in real trouble, like juvenile detention trouble. And I wanted to know where his life took him. Like... For example, the million dollar question in this collection is, did Bobby go to Vietnam? We don't get that answer, guys. Did he? I mean, it seems like a lot of the boys did. Um, you know, Willie, Sully John, Ronnie Malenfant. Um, I think there could have been a lot done with that. Um, I don't even think in the last 14 pages he mentions if he did or not. So, uh, yeah, that's huge. That is a huge Bobby area of his character that was not addressed. So, there could have been an awesome Bobby Vietnam story, perhaps a Bobby Sully John crossing path story, something. So when I look at this collection, despite how fascinating I found it, the weakest story for me is Blind Willie. And this is because 
we lose the connection to our characters a bit. If Bobby would have showed up in the Blind Willie story, I would retract that statement immediately. Because overall, I think my criticisms of Hearts in Atlantis are largely stemming from my own opinion that there was a lost opportunity to tell us more about the character of Bobby. I wanted more Bobby in general, guys, or, 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 perhaps a Harry Doolin maybe standout, a Bobby-Harry Doolin reconnection, um, and rather than Willie Shearman, what if we had Blind Harry? Like, perhaps a Harry Doolin story, because King villains are oftentimes on par with strongly written characterization than the king heroes. We, I mean, all over King's work, the villains are 10 times more memorable than the heroes. And Harry Doolin sounded like a complete asshole and a self-righteous piece of trash. And I love what the film version did with Harry Doolin as it's revealed um, when Anthony Hopkins, as Ted Brodigan, approaches Harry Doolin. He reveals that Harry has a deep, dark, homosexual, transvestite secret. He's hiding from the world and there was a lot of deep shame and it kind of really scared Harry to his core. So I would have liked either a, a villain expose uh, where we have a deeper connection to get to know Harry. Maybe he changes, uh, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge style. Maybe he's visited by three ghosts. Maybe his Vietnam time transforms him as it seems to have transformed Ronnie Malenfant. Um, so I think Harry would have been a stronger villain to do a standout story with or um, give us a main character like Bobby to anchor the story. So Blind Willie, while enjoyable, my least favorite in the collection, guys, and I think more should have been added to the soup of Blind Willie to give it more body and flavor and resonance. Um, I appreciate it quite a bit, but either Willie should have faced the music, he should have been caught or something of this 10-year-plus con should have unraveled a little bit, or we needed a reunion from the past who maybe could have given him some reprieve from his obsessive behavior or something. So my second least favorite, so this is actually above, um, above Blind Willie. So, um, yeah, Sully John's piece, uh, Why We're in Vietnam, and mostly because I was hungry for a little bit more of Sully John as a character. Because um, what we have in this piece is just Sully John at the very, very end of his days, and we do not get a lot of mention of what happened after he got home from war. Um, in terms of, like, you know, it, there was a lot of life between you know, post-war and then the day in 1999 where we get Sully John's sort of final hours. So I wanted to know who came into his life, who left his life, you know. Um, the reader is uh, understanding that Mama San, the ghost, is always there with him. And so it's like, how much therapy did he have after he came home? Or did Sully John join a biker gang as many, many, many Vietnam veterans did? And 
that's actually, if you guys didn't know, kind of how we have a lot of the biker games of today as these men coming home had no support, they had a ton of mental health issues, and when they got back to their citizen lives, they could not go back to real life and be a family man and work a blue-collar job. They, they couldn't. They were forever altered, so they bought motorcycles and just roamed the country and forged entirely different nomadic destinies that it's it would have been badass if maybe sully john started up a motorcycle game of some gang of some sort um but yeah guys i need more on the intervening years post vietnam for sully john he was a wonderful character he's one of the three in our trio we needed more from his earlier post-Vietnam life. If there was a little bit of joy, we know he was unable to have children, but you know, anything like hobbies. Did he have a dog? Did he something to anchor his story? So that way his final hours really do hit the reader a little harder than they do. Because I was super interested in him as a person. Um, he He's great. And the post-Vietnam mental health circus he has to contend with is still incredibly interesting. So on board with that, not complaining about that at all, but I wanted more about his first wife, who cared for him, and ultimately who was loving Sully John at the end. Was there anybody? Like, there had to have been somebody. So, yeah, I wanted more from that. Uh, in a little ranking, which I don't normally do, uh, I do it every now and again, but for this collection, we're going to do a ranking. So, Low Men in Yellow Coats is outstanding, and my favorite, it takes the number one spot. Hearts in Atlantis is runner-up, and then Heavenly Shades of Night are Falling, then Sully John's Story, Why We're in Vietnam, and lastly, Blind Willie. So my guys, all in all, I really, really enjoyed this collection and hold the character of Bobby Garfield very, very close to my heart, my friends. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Hearts in Atlantis Part 1, I get really, really strong Bill Denbro vibes from Bobby Garfield. Bill Denbro is my favorite King character, and I really love the structure of these stories. There's a lot of experimental elements contained within them, and there's also, I have a lot of love in regards to the wonderful symbols in these stories that connect them all really well. Um, and it lets these symbols and their presence take on a very powerful quality. For example, the hearts playing cards, the baseball glove, the novel Lord of the Flies, music from the platters, the Vietnam War, the peace sign. These little nuggets, guys, when they pop up, carry a lot of weight and significance and literary strength, and it's great to have such strong elements in a piece. It makes it super memorable, my goodness. So I could say more, but I feel I might be edging into the redundancy zone. So let's close the book on this set of stories for now, and let's end on a beautiful quote from 17-year-old wise beyond her years, Carol Gerber. At least I'm pretty sure she's the person who says this quote and tells Peter Riley in the Hearts in Atlanta story. Hearts can break. Yes, hearts can break. 
Sometimes I think it would be better if we died when they did, but we don't. Ain't that the truth, Carol? Gorgeous line. So thank you all for hanging with me in this two-part investigation of a really underrated title that is gorgeously written, folks. Just stunning. Definitely needs more readers, and I hope more will check it out in the future as there is lots to enjoy here. So if you are a fan of the podcast and haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give Kim C. a five star. And if you would like to contribute to my Christmas wish, if you would be so kind as to write something nice in a review, that would be oh so appreciated and I would sing your praises to the highest mountaintops. But feel free to write into the show at underratedsk at gmail with any questions, comments, extra info on a novel you'd like to pass along, recommendations or feedback of any kind. I would love to hear it and connect with you via Gmail or the socials as we are on all of them. So from the bottom of my overflowing heart, thank you all for listening. I am so grateful for all of you. Please take care, stay safe, and enjoy this holiday season. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.